it is possible to be sustainable and profitable. And that's really, as I see it, the only sustainable competitive advantage going forward is to have both. Speaking of sustainability, a podcast where we talk to front runners, innovators, and business specialists on, well, sustainability and where they think their industries are headed, and more importantly, how they can make them more sustainable. Hi there, this is Hani Larma from EcoChain, and in today's conversation, I'm speaking to Olaf Hoverfeld. He works in strategy and business design at Reactor. We talk about a very interesting study he conducted in the use phase of clothing, what companies can learn from designing with the use phase in mind, and why sustainability should be at the core of each business model, like it or not. See you in the conversation. Hi, Olaf. Thank you so much for joining me in our podcast session today. Well, great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. What would be great is if you could firstly, shortly introduce yourself um, and yeah, what you do for work. I'm Olaf Hoverpelt. I work for a company called Reactor, uh, headquartered in Finland. We build digital services for and with our clients. So that's, that's my work. I work with what we call strategy and business design which is a kind of blend of of traditional management consulting and design thinking and lean startup thinking. So it's often about innovation, often about data-driven business. And then I've had now for a few years this uh, hobby project that has come to be called the Wardrobe Diary, and and that that has gained quite a lot of attention. And and I guess we'll talk about that a bit more today. So that's kind of my my hobby project, which ties to my work quite a lot, actually, because we do work with fashion companies and retailers also. Yeah, super interesting. Indeed, it's it's quite nice to see that you're doing something in your professional job and then you have these uh, interests outside of that, but somehow they've been able to link together. And indeed, that's what we want to speak about today. You have the really, really cool project, uh, which I'm very impressed by. So for those listeners out there who haven't aren't familiar with the project yet, Olaf spent three years mapping every single item that he wore on a daily basis and made a really interesting project and conclusions about the use phase of products. So firstly, I would just like to get into how you kind of got into this and and where your passion for sustainability and apparel came from. I kind of ended up here. I've always tried to be a conscientious consumer, so being kind of trying to make like sustainable and sensible choices. So that's one. I've also had always an interesting in how things really work and I kind of break them apart and, and look at them. They may be physical gimmicks or they might be something abstract at how is the fashion industry doing. And then the third is, is this tinkering with data and really dig out what can we what can we dig out to help us shed light on how things work. So these three things came to came together uh, back in the first of January 2018 when I started with a question like, does it make sense to buy pricey clothes? And I discovered that I really have no clue. So that became my project. And I put in everything I own, all the clothes I own, into at the time a sheet, and then started tracking. And eventually. I built a system around that that's more scalable and, and powerful in terms of computing and visuality. And this is out on my site, uh, Wardrobe Diary, open to anyone. And the, the passion really began with, with something as simple as the cost per wear, because in a way that's a measure of quality, if you like. So a, a durable, are they durable, these clothes? The other one later when I found one was a frequency of use. It's another aspect of value. 
So I discovered a lot of kind of opportunities for betterment for myself. And then I wrote about this on Reactor's blog post, and this really took off. And later on, I've been approached by a lot of companies that, that have reached out to me. And that really opened my eyes for, for that there's like something in this use space perspective that we can get. So I kind of understood the potential. And that got me interested in the sustainability perspective because looking at my own data and then looking at the data I get now from all the consumer research that I'm helping doing with these companies, I can really see that there are lots of opportunities looking at use. So this, going back to passion for sustainability in apparel, it's been growing over a three-year period, and now I'm really into it because I see such a lot of opportunities for betterment. Yeah, and I think that's that's also such an interesting yeah, perspective. Something to think about is that all of our decisions and whether we're thinking about quality or we're thinking about sustainability or how much we're spending on our clothing, those can all kind of link back together and forms a, a full choice as a consumer as well to to what decisions am I making and where am I putting my money behind so that's that's really interesting and what were kind of the the learnings that you gained out of this research you of course did it for three years I like to think about my uh, my clothing choices but not all of us are logging them in every day so I would love to hear from you what you learned from that Oh, yes, of course. And I'm still doing it. I'm, every single day I, I do my complete my logging. So I have no intention of, of stopping. Super. As a note on that, it's actually I still see patterns that after like having tracked for a long time, many years, that only uh, are revealed now. So it takes a long time to see the long patterns because some items might require four winters in order for them to kind of reach their full potential or I 10 agree. So it's a, it's a long-term game, but my personal project was really like, does money buy quality? Uh, and, and then quality as measured by durability, uh, but then actual use, as I mentioned. On a personal level, some of the findings were that there are really lots of differences in, and vast differences in cost performance between similar clothes. So you might have a jacket, you might have a pair of shoes or two pairs of shoes. So if you boil it down to cost per wear, there, there are big differences. So that's a good starting point. The next finding is that pricey clothes can be cheaper. We tend to regard clothes as consumables. We tend to think of the price tag when we when we buy them and, and maybe be rather conscientious at that point. But then we kind of tend to forget about them. Then it's like off the books. Mm. <laughs> Even though we have on average 8,400 euros worth of money tied up in our wardrobes. But it's funny that we don't tend to think of it like that. On average, we have 180 garments in our wardrobes in, in Northern Europe. So pricey clothes can be cheaper. And this is something I see with shoes, for instance. I have, a, I typically use white leather sneakers, and I've tried quite a few different pairs. And uh, there's one particular example where use can get like really significantly cheaper across these, uh, these different uh, shoes. One no-brand pair of shoes um, that uh, cost 29.95 euros mm -hmm. at the purchase price. They actually were worn out, like properly worn out after 43 wears. And I count a day as a wear. So 43 days of wearing them. I walk a lot on average 17,000 st uh, steps a day. So they get a lot of like use also. Now this comes down to a daily price or cost per wear of 70 cents. Then compare that to a pair of shoes that cost more than three times more, 100 euros. Now, these, just as an example, these lasted 239 times or days. That's cost per wear of 42 cents. 
Mm-hmm. So the difference is rather significant between 70 cents and 42 cents percentually, if you think about it. But they also lasted more than four times or close to five times longer. So I'm thinking that in this instance, it's actually from a money perspective or from a cost perspective, cheaper to use the more price issues. It's, I would imagine, also more sustainable because you can use one pair instead of five pairs. Right. So it might be, of course, that the one pair takes more resources and, and, and stuff, but like hardly five times more. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's one learning. Then another learning is that what really determines cost of an item is not its price, it's its use. It's whether it's actually used. I see that in the consumer research also that price has a very little impact on the actual cost. Let's say it that way. We have a lot of uh, clothes that are low on purchase price, but very low on use they turn out to be more expensive than our pricier clothes. Mm. And then also one of the key findings is that what really drives use is personal preference, which is hardly surprising. But we can really see that we tend to overestimate how much we use our clothes overall, but we also tend to overestimate how the breadth of use. So we tend to think that, yeah, I use the clothes I have in my wardrobe, but actually it tends to be so that we use a few garments, favorite ones, and then the substitutes, the ones that are kind of similar, are used much less. And these are the kinds of patterns that take time and and a a lot of analysis to kind of find that uh, what sounds intuitive and makes sense. Yeah, you tend to use the clothes that you like more. Yeah, that makes sense. But then when you look at the data, it really shows that we typically out of 25 pieces of garment, we might be using only four or five actively and the rest just sporadically. And then, and then one finding also, it's, it's not about driving down cost per wear. It's, this is not like a, a cost optimization, brutal, ruthless exercise, but it's more about understanding value. It certainly helps me understand what I value myself through tracking your use. Uh, it enables you to optimize against what you find valuable. It might be sustainability, it might be cost, but only if you actually look at what we use, because we tend to have a rather vague picture of it that unlocks that. And then maybe quickly about about the extended research on the open project. So as I mentioned, anyone can join on the site and and set up their own tracker. And from what I see from that data, yes, the, the differences in cost per wear is definitely validated. We have a lot of very expensive, cheap clothes, and then we have very different wardrobes. Some advice is focus on use, not on price. That's really what determines efficiency in terms of cost and sustainability. And then buy what you need and love. <laughs> we can think about clothes as more as durable goods and focus on the value once again. Then that unlocks a whole new world of opportunities personally and for the industry and uh, really society as a whole. Well, you said a lot of interesting things there. You've convinced me to to go log my, my wardrobe there. I mainly shop a lot of secondhand, so I'm really curious to see if I am overestimating that portion of my wardrobe or not. One of your main findings as well, the I've heard you quoted as, in some cases, buying cheap is provenly more expensive. It's really interesting from a consumer perspective in terms of actually really just trying to shop better so not always looking as you said at the price but also looking at the the use and the durability of the product but also from a kind of company perspective the companies that are building the clothes this is a really interesting point because if people are going to focus on uh, how much they get use out of the product it's also worth it for the companies to start designing for durability. You see it a lot in the eco-design 
guidelines that are coming out now. Mm -hmm. uh, the EU is also setting this particularly for the clothing industry as well. And there's a really big um, focus on designing with the end in mind. So also taking into consideration the, the usability and the durability, the longevity of the product, rather than that the person has to keep repurchasing it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also a really interesting point of view for, for companies to think about, like how can they make the clothes so that it is also possible for them to last longer or that the people can actually get even more value from it if they resell it in, in the future. So I think that is something that people in general are putting more attention on. And that's also makes it financially an incentive for the companies to also start producing in this way. And if you think about data from a company perspective, what kind of role do you think data plays in making fashion more sustainable? It really has a crucial role. First of all, I think if you look at the sustainability things in fashion, they are really complex and interrelated problems. It's not something that we can kind of pinpoint and, and fix, but we, we really need to be able to break them down and improve at the system level. It's a very big shift from, from large chunks of an industry that's really been through decades kind of optimized against producing and selling and kind of trying to look at it from a point of value delivery instead. It's mm -hmm. something that is a very common pattern to go from producing something and selling it to providing that as some kind of service into providing a utility, if you like. The famous example is, is, uh, is Rolls-Royce and their uh, airline engines. So going from selling airline engines to, to selling service contracts to eventually selling airline engine hours, and then they take care of it all. So, yeah. I mean, this shift is nothing new. I see this kind of similar pattern now in fashion with also impacting design, but also to a large extent, business models. I would say maybe one thing is that it might make sense uh, thinking about what role data might have in, in making fashion more sustainable is to maybe break it up into efforts to improve the sustainability of one's own operations. It might be the footprint of what you do. If you are a brand, it, it's the, the products that you make. If you're a retailer, it's the retail operations that you have. And of course, you can have everything in between with direct to consumer, but it's really about betterment in your own operations in what's directly in your control. And distinguish that from the impact outside your own operations. So if we can produce the very same product, but help make it stay in use for twice as long so that extended use actually leads to buying less, mm -hmm. then you have just doubled the, the kind of value in the sense. So this is the other perspective. One is, as I said, like looking at your own, what I typically call the su supply chain or kind of own operations footprint. But the other one, it really ties to this use. How can we improve things there? And because it's one thing to have like carbon neutral retail operations, for instance, Patagonia is one brand who are kind of famous for it. Don't buy this jacket, right? And they're honest about it. If you are not going to use it, don't buy it. So that's a very kind of good example and statement that we're not optimizing against transactions. We're optimizing against actually providing value. Yeah. Going back to the role of data in, in this big shift, I think that this is a, a, like a really big shift that the industry is kind of going through. And I see progressive uh, companies come uh, coming pretty far. They are on their own way, kind of validating parts of the business model that ne that's needed, such as rentals or, or all sorts of different ways of going about it. So I see data and maybe on three levels. And one is like 
the supply chain level. Like we have we have Hig and Co index, and then also environmental footprint, footprint like Echo Chain, for instance. Mm-hmm. And then we have kind of clarity, the perspective, kind of the system level, if you think. And there's a lot of brands and retailers looking into repair and resale and repurposing and, and recycling and, and so forth. It still doesn't really often include the actual use. So that's why I think the third level, which is which is where the kind of, in a way, the frontier of innovation is happening now, is the actual use value. What is actually providing value for users. And I might add on a kind of system level, I talked to one Swiss company doing rental, uh, rental skiwear, for instance, they don't produce it themselves, but, but rather provide the kind of renting layer. It doesn't really make sense for people to buy, let's say a really good, let's say skiing jacket, if they only use it a few times in a season on a system level, it makes more sense if they, if they rent it. Yeah. There, is a, there is a threshold, of course, where after a certain amount of uses per season, it makes sense to own it. We need like the data of how these garments are actually used in order to foster that transition and that shift into uh, something more sustainable. So I think data is really crucial. And uh, we've come pretty far in the supply chain and the footprint perspective. And then now that the kind of use and value perspective is the new thing. Yeah. That's certainly where I'm trying to make an impact. And I think especially what you mentioned also with the the companies that are really trying to figure out like how are these products that we're producing being used by the consumer? Because in the end, that's a really important part. So in the life cycle assessment, of course, uh, as well, you have, you know, the production, you have the fabrics, but also you have the use phase. And that's something that I think more and more people are getting used to, to looking at. We have some like electronics companies. It's really interesting to see actually there that the the companies, they will calculate the life cycle of the product, but actually the use phase is one of the highest because it's an electronics product, like a, yeah. a hairdryer, for example, or something like that. It's kind of logical, but it's something really important to think about. So when you're designing that product to optimize for it to use less energy, or for example, I was speaking to Imogen Napper. She's an expedition scientist for National Geographic, and she was studying the microplastics. So what she was talking about was, for example, the hidden costs of laundry. And, and when you wash a product, you know, how much uh, fibers are going off of that product or how often do you need to wash it or, you know, all of those types of things. So those are all important aspects when the companies are also looking at the design process, so kind of that eco-design perspective to know how are people using it and how can they optimize for making that a smaller footprint. I think that's really great. And that the, the, the kinds of companies that you describe are what I think of as progressive companies in this sense. I'm running also consumer research where we capture washes and where we capture repairs and the likes. And one interesting thing perhaps related to this that I found is that the progressive companies have had this at heart for a long time. Just as an example, the Swedish Purini Sportswear is a company that is kind of like the Patagonia of Sweden in a way. And, and they've, they've offered a rental model 10 years ago. They have done in a way all they can in the supply chain thinking and, and sourcing in a sustainable way. And so and they have done a lot of research that they've published. They're really open about that. But they are now really like for, have for a long time been thinking, just like you described, how can we optimize for the use? And this brings us back to the difficulty of getting the data of use because they, they have, of course, their loyal users and, and they have done a certain kind of research where, like, can you estimate how much you use? What I'm seeing in, in this research is that we have these very kind of dedicated people that that might like that are really in the game and that like kind of know their use. Then we have what is 
I would argue that that kind of the masses or the, the kind of vast chunk of us who, who don't really know very well, when we think about, for instance, the impact of washing, it would be beneficial to know roughly how many times it's actually been washed. Because it might be that we have a top that's uh, washed maybe five times over its kind of lifetime in use. Or if it's really durable and, and loved and used, it might be 50. So then I'm thinking that when we bring together this mindset of focusing on the use, like your excellent example with the hairdryer, like if we're making a hairdryer that, that consumes a little less energy over all the hundreds of times it's used, hopefully, then that will have a larger impact than what actually goes into the product. But, but then there also, we need to kind of have a good understanding of the actual use. So that's where I think these two worlds can really like come together and, and like find really new avenues for betterment. Absolutely. And researchers like yours are already providing a lot of information, both to consumers, but also to the companies. And like you said, there's been several companies that, that approached you for some insights. I think that, that those indeed combining those two different types of data about the consumers and about the, the product perspective is really, really interesting as well. And one thing perhaps to add to that is we help consumers understand their own preferences Let's say we would like to feel well, right? Then, then I, let's say I do. I go to the to the doctor, and I, I would like to like see how I'm doing. <laughs> like you know, mid-aged guy, trying to do some sports, variable success, and so. So you could either have the doctor like just ask me about my, you know, what do you do, how do you move, and so forth, or he could also run the labs and you know run the metrics and and do the things and. I see this is really where where the the kind of which really brings out the kind of real what's up with me and what could I do about it. So based on my experience as consumers of fashion, we are not like very aware of our own use behavior. So I'm thinking that this research not only helps brands understand uh, consumers, well, it does, but it does th so through the logic of helping consumers understand themselves. Right. And then both can learn if the mindset is such that we would like to provide the utility of, of the clothes that you need rather than trying to optimize sales, like you said before. Absolutely. So I'm thinking if we, if we want to chop it up a bit, like what kinds of benefits I see in uses, like this helps us, like you mentioned, design and create products that are then actually used. That's a kind of fairly obvious, maybe and kind of simple to make happen. But then we can also build the circular mechanisms to ensure that, that a garment's durability comes into use. Because what I see in, in my own case, as I mentioned, that a winter jacket, a high quality winter jacket may reach 450 days of use, but it really takes like three years to get to that. And that is under the circumstance that it's my favorite jacket. It's the one that I standardly use. Certainly there's the segment that can be using one jacket for 10 years. But then, yeah. it, as I think of it, the real potential lies in also building circular mechanisms for garments to continue for many other users also. As I see from the data, that's really required because it's difficult for any garment to get over, let's say, 50 or 100 use times. But then the final thing I see that the research helps is to, to help change consumer behavior. Yeah. So we can buy like fewer but better garments. And this yeah. is where I see the, the big potential at the system level, because we don't even need to spend less. Because given the fact that we have all these unused and rarely used garments, we can, as, as a fashion industry, we could get the same money out of the market and yet provide 
better and more durable clothes. So this is yeah. this is why I see this as a, as a big opportunity because it's not about kind of trying to get people to buy less. It's mm-hmm. it's about helping people buy smarter. Yeah. And that also helps us get away from fast fashion into better longevity. And that's why I think we need the circular mechanisms. That's definitely a perspective that, that companies have to have is also what are the demands of, of now? You mentioned a, a company that was doing rental years ago, but I think that perspective has also changed and, and the world changes and businesses need to to kind of change along that. I even saw really, it was quite like a eye-catching headline, but it was it was in a Vogue business. They had clothes for the apocalypse, how to design for the climate crisis. And it was talking about how brands are now building really durable clothes that go for different climates and making really innovative decision-making in terms of that design perspective. But that there's even these headlines in, in big fashion companies or fashion journalism, such as Vogue. I'm not a, a kind of fashion trend expert by any means, but I, I do see a rather big difference between generations, if, if that's if, if you're allowed to say that. <laughs> so with this kind of conventional patterns and business models that we have, tending to serve rather well in the conservative <laughs> segment of, of fashion consumption. But then we have young young people who have tend to sometimes have a very radically different approach to things. And I have rarely seen an industry which would have such strong difference or large gaps between consumer segments. I see it as a good thing because, because there's like mounting pressure to figure these things out mm-hmm. for yeah. many brands. And then we might have the ones that cater to a young population, both brands and retailers and, and with different models that kind of show the way that validate that this is actually doable. Because at the end of the day, I think that only a sustainable business model can be sustainable in the long run. So somebody right. needs to kind of figure it out and, and also bring about this change in, in behavior. And, and we see in, in a lot of places that, that the consumer behavior is already there. If, if we look at circularity, for instance, a friend of mine just recently moved to Copenhagen and she was explaining that, you know, in, in Copenhagen, strollers and baby stuff is like completely like circulated. So you buy it and people preserve the packaging and everything, and then you use it for a while, take good care of it and put it forward. And I think that's a good example of we us needing like to, we need both the consumer consumption behavior change and, and the sentiment is certainly there. And then we need the mechanisms to make it happen. And then going back to your, your excellent point about design for durability, rather maybe then produce a thousand ones that are used, let's say twice, we could go with 500 ones that are used four times or 200 ones but it really puts pressure on the durability of the of the product so so going back maybe it's like i see this dualism between consumer behavior change and then the the mechanisms that enable it and i think yeah what you're kind of trying to say there is that it's important to have it at the core of the business the sustainability at the core of the business model But what would you say to companies who maybe still doubt the financial incentives of starting with sustainability? Like, how could you explain the links to the value creation that you kind of spoke about earlier? At the core is the problem that sustainability in some ways is at odds with the conventional model of producing and selling, because there's really the incentive of selling more, because that's at the core of economies of scale. The more you produce, the smaller the unit cost is, and then the cheaper it gets, which means that you can either be, pro- be 
competitive in terms of pricing or be profitable. And by that, either way, you have a competitive advantage. So it's kind of against economic logic. <laughs> However, that is assuming that things don't change. So it doesn't have to be like this. Sustainability and, and, and like this conventional model don't have to be at odds. And this is why I think that progressive companies are, are already exploring and have been exploring for quite some time. It's not about selling more, but it's selling less, but better, like we mm-hmm. talked about before. And this is something that when companies can take a focus on the value they deliver rather than, than the transactional kind of sell more and optimize for a gross profit, it's not an easy equation. But I believe that that's the only way in the long, in the long term. Mm-hmm. I believe that partly from pressure from consumers and also legislation, and, and it's, it's like it would seem obvious that at some point, we would need to face out something that's not really sustainable. The bet should not be whether to to put efforts into sustainability or not. It should be how soon can you turn that into profitability for yourself? Because that's inevitably where the game is going anyway. Going back to the role of data again, I think data that really it really plays a crucial role in discovering and uncovering and and exploiting these opportunity opportunities. I can see the critique and I can see the the worry that well if we if we sell less then that that's a problem for our business and then the argument usually is that yeah but consumers aren't willing to pay more perhaps they are i would challenge that a bit but even if they aren't just helping provide provide the, the value that actually serves them in my based on my data you can have a 25% opportunity right there mm-hmm. it is possible to be sustainable and profitable. And that's really, as I see it, the only sustainable competitive advantage going forward is to have both. Yeah, that's really well said. The consumers, I think more and more, they will also wake up to the realities, especially the, as you mentioned, the younger generations that are now getting spending power. I have seen data on that as well, that they are more willing actually to pay for sustainable products. But also, it's, it's a matter of time. I was interviewing a, a climate scientist from NASA as well, who was mentioning also supply chain disruptions so that will be inevitable due to climate change. So the earlier you start to look into how you can actually deal with that and to make your business model sustainable, also in the sense that it will actually be able to function in the future, that's really important. So if you're not looking at that well enough in advance, if you're looking at it at the moment that there's like the crisis is there within your industry, it's probably not the best also for a financial perspective as well. I would say that we see this pattern in, a, in, in different places also. We see like Swedish Klaus Olsson, the hardware store, offering a classic example of the, of the drill, right? How many times a year do people need a drill at home? But as an example that, that it might be that, yes, instead of buying for, let's say, 50 euros and then using it like once or twice, that's a very high cost per kind of cost per time you use it. So rather, it might be that it's a very good business actually to offer it for, let's say you rent it out for 10 or 15, and then you do that 40 times per item. Conceptually, it can be a very profitable business. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that going from this sell and forget to provide the utility can be a very profitable way of catering to. And then we have the sustainability there also. And it has the added effect of instead of producing a thousand 
pieces. We might only produce 10, but they are of much higher quality. It's a capability of its own for companies to be able to engage in such change. It's not something that comes natural to companies. If you're a company producing something, it really doesn't come natural to disrupt yourself. So that's something that companies need to, and leaders need to, to really actively take a role in and, and support and, and, and enforce even, but create the capability to, to kind of experiment and stay in the game of change, if you like. Because yeah. if, you're, if you kind of stick to your old thinking, then it's likely that you will end up in trouble like down the road. And in the end, it's, it's about innovation, but just in a, a sustainable way. And as you mentioned, it's it's not easy. And there's also quite a lot of, I think, confusion in the sustainability space. And I, I think particularly actually in sustainable fashion space, there's a lot of, unfortunately, greenwashing and, you know, a lot of information out there, different terms being used, all kinds of things. What kind of role would you say that brands could play in reducing some of this confusion in the fashion space? I think... Maybe going back to the point about progressive companies, a note on which types of companies have reached out during the last year now that I'm lucky and happy to be contacted by by all sorts of companies. They tend to be what I think of as progressive companies. They tend to be the ones that benefit from this type of discussion. So, so if there's discussion around sustainability and betterment in that sense, they tend to be the ones that have taken that to heart already. Then the companies that may or may not have issues with that, but at least they are kind of stay away or hiding a bit. But I would say that that regardless, it would be good to be open and honest. So to be genuinely on the kind of right side of, of this betterment, it might be good to help consumers understand because they are confused too. It's not easy to figure out, even for the ones to actually make an effort to do so. Mm-hmm. And it might be the, a simple thing like putting product footprint data along your products in your, in your web store or in your physical store. It might be simple things like that. Where does this data come from? And also to show the lack of data. So there's this time of honesty and transparency. Both brands and retailers could have a, a role in kind of being the helpers and admit that, yeah, we're confused too. We don't have all the answers, but we're right. certainly trying. So that's one, one piece of advice I, w- I would get. I would advise companies to talk about your issues and efforts. Don't try to evade or, or hide them. Because if you look at like how scandals happen, it's not really about what happened. It's about you trying to cover it up. So be open and honest and help consumers understand. It's kind of help them because they want to. I think that's great advice. And what you said about providing the information you have, but also being honest about the information you don't have or that you're not fully there yet. I think it is something that people notice uh, and appreciate. And one of the kind of threads that I've seen in a lot of these interviews that I've had with people who are from companies who are trying to do better, some are a little bit further along the journey, some are just starting out. But one of the main things that keeps coming up is that People are quite afraid to get started because they aren't there yet. Sustainability is not something that happens overnight. It's a process. So it's better that all of the companies would be doing 70% than one company doing 100% sustainable. Let people know what you are doing and what you don't yet necessarily have the data on or that you cannot yet say so much about, but you're honest about that is really important. Yeah, I believe so too. And what kind of uh, data or information do you think is the most important that the companies would mention about? Is it 
indeed something specific about the product or what would you say is one of those things that should really be available? I think that starting from clearer end or what's easier to measure, by no means easy. It's, it's multifaceted and, and rather complex too. But yes, I would say it's product data. That matters to consumers. So in practice, this is what I think of as kind of supply chain data. And this is a really difficult because you have many, lots of tiers of suppliers and, and it's a whole kind of world of itself trying to bring transparency into, into your supply chain and product level data, not like overall, but like specific tied to this very item, this very SKU. It might be different if it has a different color. It might be different because it has, you know, something that requires for it to have glue, which is really difficult right. to recycle. So let's say you're a retailer. Then, then one thing is to provide the product data, which is not not yours typically, unless you have your own products also. Mm-hmm. But then your own operations data and, and what you're doing about your own footprint. Right. It might be your logistics. For instance, Hack Your Closet is a Swedish company that buys like high quality used or pre-loved women's clothes and curates them into a service that you you get for for a month and then it's replaced they've done a lot of calculations they know their footprint of the logistics of the washing of the drying and they have also concluded that it's actually a more efficient way of distributing clothes than for people to drive or in some other way take themselves to the store and buy it so so again my point is not that this is better my point is that we again need to like look into these things to actually be able to provide an answer that actually might make sense. And then the final one, that layer is these progressive companies that are currently looking beyond or past supply chain and footprint. They take that for granted. Of course, we need to source sustainably. Of course, we need to like op- optimize our own operations. We've done that and we continue to do so. However, the next frontier of distinction is this value that we've talked about, like how are our products actually used and how can we make them last longer? It kind of comes down to where you are in the in the transition. If you're yeah. far along, then you can start building your advantage on these new progressive things. Nice. And from a concrete perspective, what would you say to the brands who are kind of starting out in this process and they they genuinely want to do something good and they want to they want to improve their apparel business? What would be a piece of advice that you would give them? I would go back to the same that that do what what can easily be done or rather easily be done to bring transparency for consumers because to the extent that they are interested that that's something that's almost expected kind of off the shelf that you should be able to provide what already exists make the data available that's that's really the the very kind of concrete and and it's as I mentioned before it can be an add-on to your web front it can be something that you do in physical retail. If you're a product company, it's 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 something that you could, could like just add to the product page or to the description page. There. I would advise companies, even though they are only starting off, to look at the long term, look a bit further ahead. So take a look at your customers and how they actually use the products they buy. You might not be in the game of introducing new business models. I would advise companies to think about how you could have a meaningful relationship with your customers while they are using the products. So not only between transactions. It might be for repairs. It might be for advice. It might be resale. Just kind of start thinking about how could we be meaningful to these people? Because eventually, at the end of the day, down the road, you probably need to forge this relationship. Otherwise, somebody else will. That's what we're seeing in in the business model shifts. And then build the capability to experiment and learn. It doesn't need to be a massive operation. As I think of it, the world is is moving quite a lot and quite at a quick pace. So just engage in the game. 
do the sense making. Starting from something, starting from what we already know you need to do, uh, which is the supply chain uh, kind of perspective. But then I would advise not to stop there because otherwise you're caught in this in this like never ending rat race of trying to to like catch up. And we're at the end of our interview and this was super, super interesting. I have one last question and that is about what other people, organizations or companies have inspired you in terms of what they are doing to make our society or economy more sustainable. I'll have to mention this Houdini Sportswear, the Swedish company. They have for a long time really had what I think of as a progressive and the kind of right approach through their rental, their own rental, are really trying to unbundle ownership and use, see how we can optimize for value. So they're one company. Then I would have to say Vestiaire Collective is this French headquartered global luxury fashion marketplace or resale who are a B Corp nowadays. What, what they are essentially doing is to lower the barrier of using high quality clothes. I think that's very ins- inspirational and, and kind of significant because they are in essence turning garments into durables and even assets. So a kind of as a counterbalance to buy something and then you use it for a few times and toss it to actually consider buying something that might cost 20 times more yeah. and use it for a while and then you can resell it for almost as much. So provided that you have that capital that's tied up for the time you use it, this actually brings very high quality clothes to kind of access for a lot of people through the mechanism that they provided, the kind of liquidity in the market. Yeah. You're not stuck with your 3,000 euro bag, right? You can like get, kind of get rid of it and get your money back. And then I would have to say this hack your closet that I mentioned, staying in the fashion scene. So this Swedish company, because what I think is really significant and what I see in my research is that they are unbundling ownership and use in a very meaningful way because they are in essence solving the trade-off between variety and use and this is one key problem that we have as consumers of fashion and and this is particularly for women i have discovered that women more than men like variety so it just simply doesn't work that you only have you know five tops and then you circulate those no you need to have variety it's a dead end trying to like convince people that that's not good However, it's a real killer of getting up to a lot of uses. So what Hack Your Closet is doing by enabling you to, to kind of have access to a large variety and still get a lot of uses out of the clothes. Right. I think that they are validating the business model that enables this system level change. So that's what I think Hack Your Closet is, is a company that's really inspirational. It's also a profitable business. I think that's, yeah. a, that's a good to note that it's not a charity. So at the end of the day, what connects these inspiring cases to me is that they bring change at the system level. And at the end of the day, as I said, I believe that only a sustainable business model can bring sustainable change. And this is what these companies are helping validate that others can then think for themselves how they could apply. So yeah. those would be the ones. Super nice. Yeah. All great examples. And I love that you brought resell into that as well, because I'm I'm a big fan of that. And I... I do see the value in it as well from a a perspective of the company and the the consumer. So really cool. Well, thank you so much, Olaf, for this conversation. And I learned a lot about your research and about the use phase and and that importance of, of companies also being aware of it. So thank you very much and I hope to speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to our chat. Don't forget to follow and review so we know how you like the conversation. See you next time.